Welcome to the Flamin Connect podcast, a podcast focused on the individual pieces that make up the larger community of people together doing what's right and making a difference. Today's hosts, we have myself, Trevor Grindy, Regan Kuntz, and Mitch Flamin. Okay, best concert you've ever been to? Oh, wow. Best concert I've ever been to was Papa Roach. Oh, wow. Yeah, for and a couple of reasons. I love Papa Roach, but the way that guy interacts with the whole show, he just out of the blue just started climbing through yeah. the stands. And like he'd pick an empty seat in an aisle, and then he'd just start climbing. And then all of a sudden he had uh, – there was two lights. There was like a red one and a and a blue one, and he split the crowd in half. He, so he pulled all the kids up on stage, which was so cool. And they're like, arguably too young. They shouldn't have been at this concert, but he didn't care. He got all the kids up on stage, and then he made the entire floor. Half it was red and half it was blue, and he started an entire floor mosh pit. It was, <laughs> and I'm standing in the stands. I'm like, how did you do that? Like that. Anyway, yeah. Papa Roach was my. Favorite concert. I've been to a lot, but I, that's the first one that comes to mind that was like, I'll never forget Trust that. your first answer. Yeah. 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 Trev? I think my favorite one was Meatloaf. Really? Yeah. Where at? Oh, that it was good. at uh, Northlands Coliseum. Oh, yeah. Interesting. What year? Oh, it was... Oh, I can't remember now. It was right when Welcome to the Neighborhood was released. Oh, yeah. So he was on that tour, but he, he had his daughter... He's like, my daughter needed a summer job, so I asked her to come along. So she sang all the female parts. Cool. Oh, wow. She's an awesome singer. Cool. Huh. And then uh, Trooper was opening, so that yeah. was party band there. Like, yeah. The, um, yeah, no, it was awesome. You know what? Uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Lights comes on the radio, and I will sing the whole song start to, for right? front to back. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. And you, can't, and you yeah. can't not. And I don't care who's in the vehicle either. <laughs> yeah. like, it just happens. <laughs> What yeah. about you, Reggie? Um, I, it's it's a close tie uh, between my first concert, which was, I'm going to say, 1996, maybe 95, was the ACBC Hales Bells Tour. Yeah. Um, and specifically, I remember about that concert was halfway through the show, um, the rest of the band went in, and Angus just did a guitar solo for like 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> kept the crowd into it. The rest of the band went back, probably had a cocktail or two. Then they come back out, and, and Angus just rolls into the next next song. And yeah. it was loud as hell. We were like way up in the nosebleeds at uh, Sastel Center at the time. Fantastic. And the other tie to it was the uh, Tragically Hip Farewell Tour. I went to the show at Northlands Coliseum in Edmonton. Um, that was a very unique experience. I'm a big Tragically Hip fan. Been to about 12 shows or nice. so. Wow. Um, but that one had a lot of emotion in it. And I mean, everybody knew it was the last time they were going to see the band live. Yeah. And see you were there, Downey. Eh? It was fantastic so i went to one uh small though like completely different scale it was downtown in i don't know what it was called o'brien's or molson's where colter wall would have just played yeah the odeon oh yeah 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 yeah. and uh saw the trues and it was it was super last minute because they're they're canadian i think yeah and so they're not very big and you kind of got to like them or not they're gonna have you just you know they're gonna have half a dozen songs that you're gonna know for sure yeah and they, they have more but like, it was just cool being in a small venue and where everyone in there was interested in coming to see them. Yeah, and everyone knew every song, and it was hard to tell if he was 
full on stage because his eyes were closed the entire time or if he was just <laughs> that into it but that that was another concert that i won't forget because i think i was relatively surprised at how much i enjoyed it and i, I liked the truth and mm -hmm. after that like i liked them even more indefinitely isn't that crazy how you go to a show and yeah. then you just get tuned into the music because it takes you back to being at the show live yeah right yeah yeah, True's a good band. I, that's that's a band I don't think about very often. No, they're pretty underrated, and they never yeah. did get big. But I think oh. they're relatively talented. Like very talented. Yeah. Okay, let's do pop quiz. Place these four crops in order of most produced. Are you ready? Potato uh, globally. Oh. Yeah. It's uh, okay. Yeah, I'm assuming it's going to be globally. Yep. Give her. Yeah. Okay. Potatoes, corn, wheat, rice. Hmm. So I, I mean, are we talking <laughs> poundage? Are we talking land I'm, use? I'm just I, gonna go top of mind, just based on volume things. I believe corn's number one, which I, all my stuff's gonna be way wrong. But corn's number one, just because of the way you see it get pumped out for feed, and I feel like a cow must eat more than a human, if I were to guess. So corn's gonna be number one. I'm gonna go with rice as number two, just based on the population of where it needs to go, and then. It's yield, based on yield. yield. Okay. I'm st I'm sticking with where I'm, my train of thought is here. And then I'm going to go with wheat just because, and then potatoes can come last. But I'm very, I don't have anything to do with potatoes in my life, really. So, <laughs> Well, and I'm probably overthinking it because I'm thinking how many pounds of potatoes do you get off an acre versus pounds of corn versus pounds of wheat and rice? That might be where the question's going, Ooh, though. That's why I, I believe this is a bit of a trick question. So I'm going to say um, I'm going to go rice, corn, wheat, potatoes. Okay. Well, you guys got the last one right. Potatoes is right for the last okay. place, for fourth. <laughs> Number one was corn. Okay. Good. Woo. Number two was wheat. Oh, yeah. And then three was rice and four potatoes. Well, potatoes I almost good. nailed that. Yeah, that you were close. close. Yeah. Good job. Okay. The word canola is derived from which two words? I'll defer because I think everyone learns that. Reggie, what do you got? Do you know this answer? Absolutely. Everybody well, knows this the, answer. Uh, Everybody knows this answer. Uh, Canada. Yes. And I'm going to say linola. Close. Oil. Oil. Yeah. You guys knew that? Yeah. Wow. Oh, so not everybody knew that? You get a you get a mulligan because you're not from here. I, I guess so. I, I've yeah, never heard that so, question yeah. before. Really? No. Hmm. Uh, I'd like to know where I learned that. I don't know where I learned that, but when someone told me that, I was like, "Huh? How original?" You know, <laughs> like you learned, what was it called before? Yeah. Rape. Yeah. Oh, what's the difference? Like nothing really, not much. So why didn't they yeah. call it canola? Yeah, I don't know because. Doesn't roll off your tongue. <laughs> not really. Canola. No. Canola. How original. <laughs> it's time for Now You Know. It's the part of the program where we talk to people, experts in their field, various varieties and various areas of farming. And today we're talking with Sean Geddes, the Vice President of Sales from Flamin. Today we're going to talk about grain dryers. Now, grain drying has been around for a long time. And a lot of growers, especially those farther north, are aware of its usefulness. Sean, talk to us about what you've encountered when it comes to the grain dryer use cases. 
I see a grain dryer in two different ways. One is a disaster response tool. So all yeah, of a sudden you yeah. can't get your crop off, it's wet and you don't know what to do and it'll 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 kind of save your butt so you can get it off and in the bin and dry and safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way we're discovering is uh, the people that have grain dryers are using them more as a management tool. Um, and in saying that, so <clears throat> there's a whole bunch of uh, things that feed into why this is is a management tool for the a customer. So there's one customer um, I know that uh, has had one for three years. He bought it as a disaster response tool because he just needed to get crop off. Yeah. Um, then he discovered um, that he can grade up. He can go hit his derm like early when it's ready. It's ready and just and run it through the dryer. And then the result was he was he was getting a better grade. Um, he got his crop off sooner. He bought himself more a larger harvest window. Didn't need that fourth combine and the fourth man and all the stuff that goes around with that. Right. He had more time. And then that man. Then the result was is the, the people that are buying the grain. Let's say the derm in this example are bugging him on him and there's incentives because he's got it off early and it's grade solid and they want it and right. so he was benefiting from that as well so he benefited with grade he benefited with having it off a little earlier he benefited a manpower way and he uh benefited in not needing an additional asset such as a combine or another truck maybe do you find most people purchase a dryer as disaster relief and then shift into using it as a management tool or are there people out there that buy a dryer strictly looking just to farm better and are open-minded to the thought of it being a management tool and maybe opening up the beginning window of harvest as opposed to having to deal with it end window of harvest so i I think that depends that's a loaded question um, I'm I, full of loaded questions, <laughs> just so you know. If you give me a yes or no answer, I'm going to be just choked because I will not ask a question that has a yes or no answer. So, Mitch, um, in northern – I'm just going to talk about Saskatchewan. In northern Saskatchewan, yeah. harvest tends to be a little bit later and a little tougher. And as you go north, you'll see more frequency of dryers in yards as because they know they need it as a management tool. And is that because the harvest window is just that much shorter? It is, and the yeah. conditions are a little tougher. Yeah. And uh, as you go south, you'll see less and less. But what I'm noticing is as people discover the value of having that tool, management tool on your yard, that the migration of dryers are, are are working south yeah and it has a lot to do again with people uh with uh machinery capacity and harvest windows is there a commodity that a dryer works best on or is there a commodity that a dryer is most commonly used for so not all dryers are the same and they do different things um but as a rule, it's your cereals that are most commonly put through a dryer. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the easiest to manage through a dryer. There's You can put pulses through, you can put canola through. Um, but as a rule, it's primarily used as uh, for cereals. 
in, in Saskatchewan from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. So, if someone's considering a dryer, what sort of what sort of considerations does a does a f- customer need to to take into consideration um, when they they want to put one into their into their handling facility? So, beyond the type of dryer, just a basic dryer itself, there's a number of things to consider. Um, the first one is you need to know where you want to put it. And you need to know a few things. Do you have the available electricity or power uh, to run that? Um, as farms have evolved, their fans, their, there's all different things going on in a yard that can really max that out. And so you just need to be aware of the available availability of power. Um, more, most new yards have three-phase power with an abundance. Um, but some of the older yards, uh, they're kind of tapped out. Um, if you're running some fans, a 200 amp service isn't going to work. Right. The next thing is fuel. So a dryer needs fuel to, like, to produce the heat. And so um, ultimately, if you had enough volume of natural gas, that would be the ideal situation. Mm-hmm. But we do have the alternative of using propane, which needs to be hauled in. Um, the final thing you need to consider is how you're going to get grain in and what you're going to do with the grain when it goes out. And there's all different types of ways to manage that. Um, You can put a dryer in an existing site with things like a Wilinga to get rid of the Wilinga blower system to distribute the the grain into different bins or uh, bucket elevators into a stack or a six pack or however you want to say it. Right. Or um, you can very simply use EMD augers um, for an in and out uh, out of a wet bin into the dryer and then into a dry bin. Mm. Um, and then there's lots of planning. Not everyone wants to do the whole whole smear at once. Um, it's uh, We find that people are approaching it from a phased approach. Mm-hmm. So they'll start building the foundation uh, of their yard site and then a plan to evolve it over time as their needs change or they can um, afford it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so then you have to take into consideration how many bushels an hour we want to handle, um, how many bins we want to fill, all, the, and then be able to expand that for the future. You bet. Um, I was just actually talking with a farmer the other day, and he had um, a, a more of a simple setup, and he had uh, a ten thousand bushel uh, wet bin, and that wet bin. And his three calm mines a day in his area would, he could keep up. Mm-hmm. And then he'd run it through the rest of the day and, uh, or the night, I'm sorry. And then uh, in the morning, it'd be empty. Right. And he could get going again. So every needs, if you're running five, six calm mines, you're going to need different capacity. Um, and then you're going to have to know how you're going to get that grain away. Uh, if you're in the middle of harvest and you just have, if you have a 10,000 bushel bin feeding, uh, wet bin and then you have a 10,000 bushel dry bin uh, that's not necessarily going to work um, if you don't have the capacity to get it away and you want to continue to use a dryer and there you have it thanks Sean we're going to move on to the last segment of our show today and that's an interview with our special guest our special guest today is Roy Ritchie how are you doing today Roy um, just like they say in the old in the old testament I'm fine <laughs> well, let's um, maybe start back in um, 
Back in the beginning. <laughs> we'll, we'll go back into your childhood. What was it like growing up uh, for you, Roy? Well, I grew up on a farm, 7 to 18 miles away from anywhere, and uh, did a pretty good life. Drove some great cars and wrecked a few and had a lot of fun. What would the vintage of these cars be, Roy? Let's just say they're older than you. Would, could, could, you con- <laughs> could you consider them muscle cars? Absolutely. <laughs> How expensive was fuel back then? Well, all I know is that you could take a girl, go to a drive-in, fill a car up full of gas again. Uh, after the movie, you could go to the dog and suds, have two meals, and still have change. Oh, and drink. 12 beer, and still have change left from 20 bucks. <laughs> so does that date me? Well, not exactly, but it, you're yeah. right. That is a time in the world <laughs> yeah. before I was alive. Where was Dog and Suds, and was it licensed? No. Okay. It was not licensed, but it was right across the street from the high school. In? In Rosetown. In Rosetown. Right on. So whereabouts was your farm then? Uh, we were 18 miles from Rosetown, 7 okay. miles from Zelandia, and 11 miles from Harris. What would uh, one of your first memories be? I think probably uh, moving cattle yeah. when I was young. And we, we had to move our cattle to pastures that were about seven miles, eight miles away without big trailers that we've got now. And uh, so we did it by horseback. Did you have a horse? Absolutely. Had a couple of good ones too. When's the last time you rode a horse? Last time I rode a horse. Two years ago. Oh, yeah. I still can do it. Don't like it, but I still can do it. <laughs> now, you grew up with a fairly large family. How many siblings did you have? I had six. I had three brothers and three sisters. And where do you fit in in the group? Um, second youngest. So, so that Almost meant, the baby. So by the time that I needed money, all the older ones were gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what about your parents? What's uh, some of your earlier memories of your mom and dad? My dad was a a farmer and a cattleman. Uh, he wore a cowboy hat every single day, wherever he went, and uh, and his nickname was CPR. Why CPR? My dad's name was Charles Peter Ritchie. He wrote his initial CPR. And it just stuck. So when, when vanity plates came out, he got CPR one before the railroad decided that they needed it. Um, my mother was uh, a teacher and basically homeschooled us when we couldn't make it through math in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hardworking individuals, hardworking family, just a little crazier on the edges. Do you think the hard working is one of the traits that you gained from your uh, your parents that brought you to where you are today? Absolutely. There was always a a uh, deep down need to be busy, to work, to uh, um, be part of, and uh, that's what came from my parents and their parents before them, both uh, my grandparents on. And my great-grandparent uh, homesteaded in Saskatchewan in the early 1900s and uh, have been there ever since. 
when you got in to be a teenager, were your parents fairly uh, disciplinarian? Did, did you get in trouble lots? Oh, I was in trouble lots, but not generally there. <laughs> um, I used to drive fast, so the police and I had an ongoing relationship. They would stop me and give me a ticket, and I would go and pay it, and then I would drive fast. Um, and we continued that on for a, some time. I feel like you still drive fast. Like, there may or may not have been a ticket in the last 365 days. That <laughs> I'm, Well, I, I got the opportunity to try out a pretty good car, and I won't tell you how fast I was going, but the muscle cars of the 60s didn't go this fast. So, Roy, you're sober now, right? Yeah. How long have you been sober for? 42 years. 42. Well done. Yeah. So. I stopped when I was 24. So there was a story that you once told me, and this is probably, oh, I'm going to say 15 years ago. And if it wasn't when you quit drinking, it was right before you decided to quit drinking. I, think I know the story you mean, but I went to the bar on a Thursday, late, like, like 10 o'clock, knowing that you can't get drunk in two hours. And the next thing I know, it was Tuesday. And I was a little ways away from home. I was waking up into the bright sunshine, and it was like February. And it was hot, and I was looking up at a sign that says Houston 100. And I have no idea how (laughs) I got there. Um, But my steel trap mind picked that all out. Radio said it was Tuesday. I had money in my wallet. And uh, when I phoned my boss and said I probably wouldn't be in today, he said, that's okay, you're not coming back anyway. And uh, another job gone. But I went on to the Astrodome. It's cool. You figured while you were there, you might as well just make the best of it. What can you do? (laughs) Um, Similar things like that led you to say, okay, enough's enough. I've got to quit. I've got to get my life in order. Yeah, good for you. I did a, a lot of not very pleasant things in my life, and and uh, it just had to stop. What was the hardest part of that process? Is, is- hardest part probably was um, saying that I needed help to deal with it, mm-hmm. and once I got through that part, it got better. In a time where it wasn't common to ask for help or not looked upon as not at my age positive, yeah, there were maybe a half a dozen of us in the province that were my age or younger. Mm-hmm. Wow, that had stayed sober for any length of time. Good for you. And at that age, there's a lot of social pressure to stay in that sort of uh, lifestyle. Oh yeah, yeah. It. Uh, when you're from a small town, like small, um, it's pretty easy when you drive up to the place where they have the AA meetings and get out there <laughs> without having... Look who's going now. Getting back into your earlier years, what's the first job you had when you got out of school or got off the farm? Um, I had a number of 
jobs that I did for winters or summers or, you know, uh, short-term seasonal kind of work. I drove a grader for uh, six months. I installed flooring for two years. I worked for different farmers. I did a lot of different things. I spent a winter working in the coal mines in BC. Hmm. That's it terrible place to be but i feel like you have some stories yeah just about that i, I kind of want to hear more about that actually i don't think i want to tell you some of those so oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. again involves crossing borders <laughs> so what what path led to you to flavins how, how did you eventually end up here um i was just getting going in farming I had taken on quite a bit of debt when the 1989 hit, 88 and 89, and, and the drought, and couldn't get it. I, so I left the farm with, I uh, sold my share to my brother, uh, and he continued and still does to this day. Um, and I left and had to go somewhere else and, and uh, went back to school a bit, got some business training, and uh, by accident, I put a resume in at Flamens. They're agriculture. I know something about agriculture, so I came. One of the jobs I had before, though, was, uh, was uh, working at a grain cleaning facility uh, where I learned how to set machines and run them. And, and uh, I was taught by somebody who was really, really good. And uh, then when I came into the city, I... Uh, Dropped a resume off here, and I don't know whether it was Warren saw it or Don saw it, but they decided that I should have a job. What year was that in? That would have been in 2000. And how did that interview go? Well, they, uh, Don Flamin did my interview and decided that I could have a place to work here. And uh, my first day of work would be the farm show in Regina, and so my first day of work was the 11th of June. And I climbed in my car early in the morning and drove down there and said, I said, well, what do I do when I get there? He says, go ask for Warren. <laughs> and so I shadowed him through the farm show, selling machinery that I didn't know anything about, uh, different types of cleaners than I've ever seen before. And uh, so I learned on the job. Grain cleaner specifically. You've grain cleaner. Grain cleaner. Yeah. Okay. Grain cleaner specifically. I was trying to sell Jezdal grain cleaners, and uh, that was my first taste of flamens. Do you remember your first sale? Mm, uh, my first sales were screen sales, um, and there were so many. I no. Do you I remember don't. your first big sale? I remember some of them. Some of them were memorable, but uh, uh, I've dealt with so many really good customers over the years that have come back to me and trust me. And and uh, um, it, I become some sort of a trustworthy person in in their world, dealing with cleaners and what they do and how they work. And uh, picking a favorite or picking a would be. Not realistic anyway. What do you think it takes to build that trustworthiness you're talking about? 
it's honesty. I don't sell things to people just because they think they want it. Uh, I find out for sure that of what they're doing and then uh, give them the options. And sometimes I didn't make a sale, but the next year they come back and see me because they trusted what I said. And I've tried to work that in my whole business life or uh, work with customers. I try to do the best I can and be as honest as possible. And it works out. It always works out. Did you think 20 plus years ago you'd still be working at Flamin? I don't know if I, uh, all I know is that that time I really needed a job. Uh, <laughs> I was married and I had uh, a couple of, or I had one very small child and, and uh, needed, to, needed to be at work. What's something that happened in, let's say, the first half or the first decade of you working at Flamin? that you wouldn't get away with in the last or second decade of you working at Flamin? There's a number of those. Uh, I, and I don't know if the statute of limitations is over on those. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Yeah, you're good. We won't tell Pam. Pam isn't going to be listening. Yeah, there's, maybe. there's, you know, sarcastic and wit, and, and uh, um, we may have picked on people just because they were there more than anything. I remember uh, being part of, part of a conspiracy against uh, another employee where we loaded his car up with a full load of old flyers so that the car wouldn't back up if you could have got in it anyway. Uh, it was entertaining watching him try to open I, I was talking to him when he was going to his car at the end of the day, and he opens the door to his car, and, and just this mountain of paper slide out. Um, but we didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, not on record. <laughs> we, did, we didn't have security cameras back then. Oh, there were a few, there were a few things that, uh, a few things that happened. I feel like I remember a story where when someone left the office that night, their desk was in the office on the ground and when they got to work in the morning I heard I heard that when that guy <laughs> got back to work the next morning it was uh screwed to the ceiling uh it was kind of hard to keep his chair and work from but you know it was still in the building what did he think of that um <laughs> I'm pretty sure he thought it was bad and then funny <laughs> We did help him get it down. There was another time that we, we, uh, we got another employee. I think I still have a photograph of it when we uh, saran wrapped him to his chair and just kind of left him out in the front uh, for people to view. Mitch? If, if I recall that front, what's the word, like foyer? Yeah. Covered in glass. Even in a minus 30 day, it's about plus 35 degrees in there. <laughs> it's just... Well, from memory, though. They've rescued you. Yeah, yeah. yeah they rescued me a few hours later. <laughs> there, was a, there was a few things. One of my favorites was when we filled the desk drawer with uh, water and goldfish. It's pretty, easy, it's pretty easy to get it into the drawer, but it's really hard to get it out. 
apparently. I recall a time, and I won't point fingers at you, but I'm pretty sure you were quite involved. I was never involved. I was a, a, you a were witness a, at best. A bystander, an innocent bystander with your camera out. Was there a time something happened with like a Cadbury chocolate egg? Oh, yeah, that was... Uh, I, didn't ha- I didn't have anything to do with that one except witness. You know, Cadbury chocolate eggs are little and they're multicolored and, and a robin's egg is little and multicolored. And if you put them in the same bowl and with someone who just comes by every time and, and takes, a, uh, takes a Cadbury egg, sooner or later they're going to get to the one that you want them to. You just uh, got to try not to laugh too hard so they know it was you. Could you imagine sticking that in your mouth and taking a chomp? <laughs> Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine, Reggie. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even hold the camera for that one. Okay, did you actually put this thing in your mouth? I have a video of this entire event happening. And in the first, I'd say the first couple seconds was uh, like a ton of excitement until it wasn't chocolate. It was very liquid. And then there was a ton of confusion. <laughs> And then there was a ton of chaos, and then it all uh, it, it all, all leveled it up. It all went sideways for <laughs> yeah. a while. For those listening, we may have already had some people pull over and dry heave out the side of their <laughs> tractor or car at this point. Yeah, that was a real life thing, though, and that that video was probably taken on like I don't know a Motorola Razor, like the mm. first phone that had a camera in it. <laughs> yeah, good times. Again, don't tell Pam. Okay, just to switch gears here for uh, a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about... I can the... talk a, about anything. <laughs> Let's talk about the Fleming culture. When you first started, um, it was different location, mostly different people. How has that progressed over time? Oh, when I started with Flamins, I think there were 13 or 14 employees um total or out of uh, that location total here in in saskatoon oh in the saskatoon location got it um at most there was a couple in the trailer shop uh you know uh, paul and al fixtures in flamens um betty um and don of course was here every day uh and so it was a very small intimate family kind of a business uh and you 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 did all the jobs because there wasn't anybody else to do them so you ended up hooking up trailers and you ended up um you know selling it one side and hooking up a trailer on the other it 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 became a kind of a home away from home a, a really family oriented uh time and i think that over the years, and we changed locations, like uh, my first office was uh, was the kitchen table in, in a secondary location that I was working from. It wasn't a Commodore 64 computer, but it was close. And we were making screens with nibblers and uh, a hand rivet gun or a, you know, a, a hand stapler, putting them together. And... Uh, before we use shear, uh, metal shears even. And uh, like everybody did, everybody worked. And 
it progressed to, I can't even tell you how long it's been since I put a staple into a, into a frame, but um, it's progressed to more and more employees. And I think it counted the other day that I had uh, 12 or 13 different offices <laughs> since I've been with Lamont. Um, and shift, shift gears, and it's still that way. It still shift gears to do what's necessary and be as much of a help as you can be to everybody in Flamence that needs to get something done. Still very family-oriented. Um, you, know, you know, there's just more, more people. I don't know how many employees there are in Saskatoon now. Well, I started a little after you because <clears throat> when I got here, I think there was 20 to 30 in this Saskatoon location, and there's over 80 now just out of here. Yeah. Yeah. It's been some significant growth. What have you seen change amongst customers in that span of time? They get younger. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. What about their process, their business? What what's changed in the ag market since you've been here? I guess when I started the the normal customer for coming in to see us would be two uh, two thousand to five thousand acres. And now we're dealing with people that are ten thousand to forty thousand and and larger. Uh big operations and uh and that takes some different equipment some different solutions um yeah it i i guess it's no surprise to anybody in the ag industry that uh, farms are getting bigger and uh no we just changed with the times mm-hmm. we still go grain we still clean it we still get it to port so you talked about solutions um and earlier on, you had mentioned about talking to the customer and finding out what they need. Kind of go through that process of how you, you get the information you need to, to find that solution for the customer. Well, my first question that, uh, that I ask of anybody is, what do you want the machines to do? What do you want the end product to be? Then the next one would be, how much of this are we talking about? Oh, I want to clean grain at at 2,000 bushels an hour, but I've only got 10,000 bushels to clean. It it, We get a very massive machine for not, for, uh, you know, to use for a couple of hours. That um, we try to balance that out and and get down to the basics of what they want and need. Uh, Because it's not always the same it's not always the same thing. Um, and I won't say that I lead them to their answer, but I've got, there's pros and cons to almost any process. And so you lead them through and, and let people decide for themselves about uh, how deep or how far they want to go into a process. And and based, based on cost and quality. And... Uh, you know, sometimes you just say you're better off to get somebody to come in and clean that thousand bushels of grain. Um, it's it's easier and cheaper for you. Um, you know, it's uh, it's one thing to I could sell them a machine, but I'm 
it'll be in the fence corner before we're done. And that's not what I want. I don't ever want to uh, overextend somebody for that. I'll switch gears uh, a little bit and just ask you some off-the-wall questions. My elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. So. <laughs> just halfway there. That's all we have to do. Uh, where's one place you'd like to go that you have never been before? One place that I would like to go that I've never been. Austria, I think, is one of the places I'd like to go. Why? Oh, history and uh, beauty and culture and, uh, you know, there and Scotland, which is just mean, vicious, and and uh, and full of Scotsmen. <laughs> so, which one of those two places do you have ancestors in? Then, uh, my wife's ancestors are from Germany, Austria, and my ancestors are from Scotland, and uh, so I'm a little drawn to both. So, your wife has culture, and you're a little ruthless. Is that well? My mother right? had culture, and my dad was a little ruthless. So. <laughs> What's your philosophy in life, Roy? My philosophy of life, oh my. To be a benefit among whom we live. Without that, there is no, no freedom. You, know, you can be your own, you know, I'm me and I'm number one and all of that. But the, real, the reality of life has more to do with what you can do for others than it is what you do for yourself. And I think the older I get, the more I... Um, believe that. Yeah, that goes really against kind of the the zeitgeist right now. Is that it? Yeah, everybody's out for number one. I want what I want, and I want it now. And what you're describing is goes directly against that. No, you can be number one and also be a benefit to other people. It just you just have to be honest and true about what you do. Or, or how you present yourself. Because when I, when I come to work, I like coming to work. I, and when I leave here, I like going home to my family and to uh, everything there. And you know, in, spite, in spite of the trials and tribulations of life, I still like it. And I still enjoy simple things there's nothing quite like sitting out on the back deck in the summer and smelling the barbecue and it's pretty simple pretty simple family and friends and and uh just being a benefit to the to people around me I could probably vouch for you on that. I don't know how many years you and I have worked together for, but it's it's over 10 by now. Um, and I would say the one thing that, like for me, waking up and coming to work has always been a treat is that you always knew, no matter what kind of day it was, there would be someone there, at least one person named Roy, that would help you out no matter what you had coming down the pipe in the day. It didn't matter what I had coming down the pipe or what you had coming down the pipe. We always... You were always there to support someone that needed help. And I, I haven't seen you waver from that since the day I met you. Well, I try. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and similar to your point, I mean, you obviously love coming to work because you're here at after, after 7 every morning, and you're the one that puts the coffee in the coffee pot, and you kind of create this culture where 
even though we don't start work till eight o'clock, generally we're all here at seven thirty, at least a, a a few of us, and we have a coffee, we have a little BS session, and then we go on with our day, and it's a great way to start the day. Yeah, you can hardly uh, be sarcastic without showing up here in the morning. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you may have already answered this question, but I did have down a, uh, written down a question. Is um, what is an ideal weekend for you, Roy? What do you like to do? Oh, that's changed a lot over the years, but um, I, I guess maybe the uh, from working here year after year, the sheer amount of phone calls that come in here is staggering. Um, and the one thing I don't want to do on the weekends is answer the phone. <laughs> um, and not because I don't like or I'm willing to help, but, man, I get tired of talking on the phone. And uh, I think I've been, I've had a horse, hoarseness in my throat since 1994, <laughs> um, just because of that. Uh I like being home. I love ball. Uh, I would go almost to the ends of the earth to to watch fastball or baseball. When did, when did that start? Um, oh, that is... If you went back, it would be the, the World Junior Baseball Championships that were held in Kindersley. And... Oh man! In the um, who was there? George Bell. Um, I think, I think one of the Alamars. Like these kids were just young, and came were coming up and going to be somebody. And to watch that high end ball was. With my dad, especially, he was a he was a ball fan. Would go anywhere to see one, and uh, you'd have to be a really big ball fan to go to Hazlet to watch ball. Nineteen eighty four. Eighty four. Yeah. It was. Uh, yeah, we went. My dad and I, and yeah. uh, lots of times. That's a big. That's a big deal for Kindersley. It was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. How did they ever land that? Uh, great volunteers, wonderful ball fields, um, and, and every little town sponsored a team. So would that have been juniors would have been 16 and under? No, that would have been, uh, 18, 18, 19 year olds, uh, and kids that weren't, hadn't been seen by anybody Yeah, coming out of Puerto Rico and. Uh, and uh, Guatemala or uh, Cuba, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, to see some of those players and watch them on TV a few years later was kind of neat. When you watch your son play ball, and your son still plays a lot of ball, do you contain yourself in the stands? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> That's just something he's had to get used to. Uh, yeah, I think I. I was blessed with a couple of children that uh, were adamant and, and 
ecstatic about doing things. Uh, my daughter was a dancer, and I would go anywhere to watch her. Uh, my son played hockey and ball, and I went everywhere to watch that, and I was loud. And I was probably embarrassing, but I believe that that's part of what a parent's duty is, is to embarrass their children a little bit, uh, to make them humble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm, they know I'm there. If they were sitting here right now and we asked them, what's it like having your dad at a sporting <laughs> event, whether it's a dance recital or, or a ball game, what would they say? It's embarrassing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, hope they, I hope they look back on it and say he was there. Yeah. And uh, it's fun to watch good ball or good sports, good dance, uh, just f to see the people that they grow up as to be. Because I'm proud of my children that way, and uh, how they can, how they work with themselves, and how they present themselves to the world. So, how old are your kids now? Uh, Twenty, twenty-two coming up, and uh, just coming up to twenty-one. And what are they busy with? Uh, Justin just got back from uh, the U twenty uh, fastball. Nice um, nationals. Yeah. Yep. I know he'd have liked to have done better, but that's the way it works. Um, and my daughter is moving to Calgary to be work and find a, a little bigger audience or a little bigger uh, bit of the world. What is one thing that people may misunderstand about you, Roy? Just the, the depth of sarcasm and wit. <laughs> I thought we had a good grasp on that, but apparently not. Well, I know that there are people who just turn their head and walk away puzzled. <laughs> That's usually because you do a pretty good job of not laughing after you say something. You just walk away, leaving them there puzzled. Well, like, and everybody else is, is he serious? I don't yeah, even know. You, know. you can't. The hysterical laughter gives you away if you're be, trying to be sarcastic. And... That's why you leave and go find somewhere to <laughs> giggle. Yeah. <laughs> what are you the most thankful for, Roy? My family, then my job, um, um, my faith. Um, I've tried very hard in my life to be a person that I like. And I tried very hard in my life to raise children that other people like. Because mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's fair parents have to have to like their children <laughs> or, or uh, but I know that when my kids are out they are uh, good people mm -hmm. well the one thing that I'm very thankful for is to be able to show up for work and to have a coffee with you in the morning and get the opportunity to experience um, working with somebody that's been in this industry for 20 plus years and we have a lot of young staff in this building, and uh, they would all definitely mirror my sentiments. And um, we learn from you every day, and I think we will continue to learn from you over the course of time as long as you allow us to um, be um, living in your shadow. So I thank you very much for that, Roy. I, I think just one more thing to add is uh, to the young people in, in this organization is I'm glad they're here too. I'm ecstatic that... I don't want the things that I've taken a lifetime to learn go down the tubes because it's my end. I, uh, 
these people are hard workers and good good souls and uh i'm glad if i can help absolutely So how we want to end this uh, podcast, Roy, is just going around the room and asking you a uh, quick series of questions. And just what comes off the cuff is the answer we're looking for. So are you ready? Well, we can try. Okay, first question. If you had three wishes, what would you wish for? Money, time. Three more wishes. <laughs> <laughs> that works so well with the next one. Uh, if you were to throw away love or money, what would it be? I like the answer I heard just today. If I don't answer love, it's going to cost me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most beautiful place you've ever seen? Oh, my. Uh, the Karunda Station in North Queensland, Australia. Nice. It's magnificent. Right next to the waterfall, by the way. What was your fondest memory of high school? Oh, drinking was involved, I'm sure. So, no memories. <laughs> <laughs> so, no memories. What's your favorite TV show, Roy? Big Bang Theory. Still is. Nice. I've, I've switched up a decade from MASH, but... <laughs> <laughs> What's the strangest thing in your refrigerator? In my refrigerator? Oh... It doesn't have to belong to you. <laughs> right now, there is a paintbrush. How about that? <laughs> Strange enough. It would be stranger if you ate it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> With your what flavor yeah. is it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's the biggest barbecue brush I've ever seen. <laughs> repainting, the bath, repainting the bathroom. So there's a, you put, wrap it in saran wrap and put it in the fridge and it keeps. It doesn't free. get hard. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today, Roy. Oh, you're welcome, I think. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Flamin Connect. For Mitch Flamin and Regan Kuntz, I'm Trevor Grindy. Join us next time. Talk to you soon. Music